Hello, I'm Richard Corns, Chief Executive of the British Council for Offices, the BCO, and welcome to the latest in our discussions with prominent members where we look at the office in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, this week's theme brings together journalism and architecture, and where better to turn than an exceptionally good friend of the BCO, Paul Finch. So welcome, Paul. Well, it's very good to have you with us. And for, for those who may not know, Paul is Programme Director of the World Architecture Festival and Editorial Director of the Architectural Review and the Architects Journal. Paul entered journalism in the early 1970s after reading history at Cambridge. And in the course of his career, his many roles have included being a founder commissioner at the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, CAVE, in 1999, chairing CAVE's London Olympics Design Panel and overseeing its merger with the Design Council in 2011. Paul was awarded an OBE for services to architecture in 2002 and is an honorary member of the BCO, a very rare distinction. And I think I can safely say Paul has probably forgotten more about architecture than most of us will ever know. So welcome again, Paul. It's, it's very good to have you with us. And I'll, I'll jump straight to questions, if I may. And to kick off, how great a challenge, Paul, do you think the coronavirus pandemic presents to the architectural profession? Well, it certainly presents huge challenges because um, most architects are in business and they will be affected by the economic consequences uh, of the virus, uh, no doubt for, for perhaps two, three years, perhaps longer, depending on how the UK and the world economy goes. On the other hand, I think there are some silver linings to this enormous cloud and architects are by nature optimistic in a sense they have to be everything they do is about the future i think they tend to come at these things with a can-do approach and how do we cope with the problem so not to underestimate the scale of the problem and the challenge um, but on the other hand there are clearly some areas of of work for architects and designers uh, which will be new for them. No, that, that's that's fascinating, Paul. And it, it sort of it, it, that optimism and that and the, and the challenge brings me neatly to the next question, which is about something that we obsessed about for a long time, but but has really fallen away in the pandemic, and that's Brexit. And many in the profession were very concerned that Brexit would deter talented architects from working in Britain. But we've now, of course, have left the European Union. And the pandemic has perhaps made a trade deal at the end of this year's transition period less likely. Do you think those who, who were worried, should they still be worried? Well, there was, a, to me, rather amusing headline in the Architects Journal the other day saying, architects slightly less pessimistic about leaving the EU uh, than they were, which is a sort of hedged way uh, of saying, well, perhaps things aren't as bad as we thought they were going to be, perhaps in the context of, of a much bigger problem, which has beset us since both the referendum uh, and, of course, Boris Johnson's election triumph. I think it's a bit difficult to know exactly where architects stand as a whole on this subject, because 
the people who've made the most noise were Remainers, but I would say they were a sub-branch of Remainers who took particular uh, pleasure uh, in attacking Leavers so that you had a very uh, vociferous um, minority of the profession shouting the odds, as it were. I think in, in all fairness, a lot of architects were worried, as half the population were, at least half the population. The proportion of architects who depend on the EU for a livelihood is frankly very small. And I think when people think about this, a lot of the fears that were being raised that we would never be able to recruit architects from outside this country were absolute nonsense from day one. And I'm afraid to say that I think some people who were screaming and shouting about never being able to employ a Spanish architect again were not only wrong about that, but they were also slightly disguising the fact they liked having highly skilled people and they were not paying uh, highly skilled salaries. As things have turned out, I think almost all the concerns about being able to import skilled labour uh, have been dealt with and have vanished. And I would be immensely surprised if going around London in the next two or three years, uh, we don't see just as many architects from countries all the way across the world and certainly beyond the borders of the EU. I love your reference to that headline, Paul, slightly less pessimistic. Fantastic. It could be straight out of Yes, Minister, wonderful stuff. And you're right, of course, you look at many practices and, and they go way, way beyond the, the, the EU, the United Nations, as you say, it's, it's a very, very international market. For, for my next question, Paul, I'd like to come into the office specifically, which is, of course, what the BCO is all about. And, and the office has always adapted over the years to a greater or lesser extent. But how big a game changer do you think the pandemic will be for UK policy? Well, I think that all I can say, I mean, this is sort of quasi-professional guesswork. I've watched with interest um, your other guests in this series and have found their comments uh, very interesting and I think uh, very balanced about what may happen. And I don't think anyone has said, it's going, simply going to be business as usual and everybody's going to flock back to work in their offices in exactly the same way. I think this will be uh, highly fanciful. On the other hand, <clears throat> I do feel that people who've claimed that from now on everybody's going to work at home, um, we won't need office space, the market will collapse, investment values will be no more, are going to an extreme which I don't find uh, that credible for a variety of reasons. First, even if the, if the amount of office space per person increases because of social distancing and all the things, the health and safety associated with this pandemic and potential future pandemics, in that case, you will need as much office space for a reduced number of office workers who are in the building at any one time. So, the, so my, my first observation will be the idea that all, uh, all people who employ others in offices are going to halve their occupation uh, is just wrong. They will need the same amount of space uh, for fewer uh, employees. Second, the culture of work um, in human society and the way that people group uh, and communicate and interact 
is very, very powerful. And it isn't the same um, doing it from home. And if it feels, hey, this is nice, that's partly because all the groups working together at the moment online, or most of them, have all worked in offices together before. In other words, it's talking to known colleagues with whom you have had normal human interactions in the past. And I think there's a very big difference between um, teams who know each other uh, working together online as opposed to uh, people who've never met, um, have never had a drink, have never had a lunch, have never been to someone's leaving party, have never had that uh, convivial uh, way of life of, of which the office is very much a part. So I think things are bound to change significantly um, but I think actually the, the, the BCO and, and some of the research it's sponsored is sort of ahead of the game on this. For example, in Copenhagen, there was a very interesting presentation by Andrew Chadwick um, and, uh, and Jeremy Melvin about uh, what they call space-time architecture and the concept of the square foot hour almost being a unit of currency by which you measure uh, the intensity of use of an office, the number of people in at any one time, and that time could vary a lot. And it's not exactly the same as a WeWork model, which is a sort of, it's a head lease model and multiple tenancy. Rethinking the relationship between space and time and occupation and how you charge for it, I think is one of the things that may come out of this. And good for the BCO that it sponsored this research, which I think is, has got legs and will probably uh, go further. I suppose the other, the other point to make is that I'm sure that we'll stop thinking about density um, in two ways, and we'll use two different words. I mean, density in terms of floor area ratio is a mathematical way of describing the relationship of built form to its site particularly if it's a tall building um, but it can also mean density of occupation you know how many how many people to a floor but more specifically probably in the world of facilities managers and quantity surveyors how many square feet do you give these poor office slaves and if you've got more than 70 it's regarded as luxury well, I think that's completely going to change because of COVID-19. And I think what we're going to be talking about is intensity of use in an office. In other words, intensity will be about people uh, and density will be about floor area. And the critical thing for facilities managers and everybody concerned with the health and well-being of their employees is how do you deal with intensity? What's the desirable level? And do our offices actually accommodate for this uh, in a proper way? That's why there'll be lots of work for architects and interior designers, making sure um, that these, uh, this, this great facility, the office, uh, is optimized. Very, very interesting, Paul. I mean, unsurprisingly, in the course of, of these interviews over the last few weeks and in the work that we've been doing more generally, we've been presenting arguments which we hope are very cogent for the, the future of the office in a different way, no doubt. And, and some will be unexpected, but why it will survive and indeed thrive. But one thing that, that struck me in an interview I heard with Lucy Kellaway, you may remember Lucy, former um, 
correspondent of the, of the FT, now a teacher, and she used the word fun. And frankly, being in an office is a lot more fun for most of us than being at home all of the time. And I think that has been lost in a lot of this because there's been understandably a great deal of technical debate, but simply that social interaction and being with other people is more fun. And that's what an office does. I'd, I'd like to um, continue the theme, uh, Paul, in, and look at, look at quality. Now, the quality of UK office design is exceptionally high and improves year on year. What can Britain and its architectural talent offer the rest of the world? Well, I think the first thing um, to say about that is the one reason we have a thriving um, architectural office design culture is the relationship between um, architects and engineers. I think there's much more open discussion, much more kind of uh, equality of, of status between great structural engineers, now great environmental engineers, um, and the architects uh, who are working with them to create uh, whole environments. So one of the first things I'd be looking for is um, what constructive interactions are we going to see between architects responsible for replanning space and volume and sequencing and for example service engineers who are going to be responsible in a new way uh, for the quality of the air so that's one thing and i think that it's a powerful and creative relationship which is based more on discussion rather than simply saying that's what i've designed now it's up to you to make it work. I think there'll be more discussion about, well, what is it that we want to work in the first place? And I would include many BCO client members uh, in this uh, who will have a double interest uh, in this subject. First, because they themselves occupy offices. What are they going to do with their own offices? In exactly the same way that, of course, architects are busy designing their own offices before they design anybody else's. So their own offices are a work in progress. Um, and secondly, of course, the, the clients will be responsible for buildings that either will re-let when leases run out, or in the case of new buildings, will let in the first place. So I think that you're going to have, um, which in a sense is a kind of representation of the BCO's uh, membership, you're going to have a close working relationship between uh, investors, clients, facilities managers, architects, uh, engineers, of course contractors, but I think it's that front end thinking about design which is going to be critical. And in current circumstances, obviously all architects have had to think about their office in terms of circulation, the flow of people, how you get the two meter thing, how you do your office layouts, how you nightmare, how you deal with lavatories. The more people in the office, the bigger the problem uh, becomes. Do we have a red light system as on aeroplanes? Do you have to book a time? You know, th these are facilities things, but they do bear on the nature of architecture itself. And of course, for new buildings, where does the core go? How easy will it be to separate people? Will you ever see ironmongery, conventional ironmongery in, in, in the office of the future? Won't it all be sliding doors? Uh, won't it all be, if you want taps to work, it's either, it's a sensor mechanism in the tap itself or under the mirror, uh, or alternatively, it's a, a rubber push button 
on the floor, which they were using in hospitals in the 1960s. Um, so no doubt architects across the world will be thinking about that, not just British architects, but from observation, the intensity and value uh, and construction quality of the best of the office market in the UK is probably ahead of most other countries, maybe not Japan, uh, but certainly uh, the US. So I think there's going to be some very constructive and creative discussions here. I'm sure you're right, Paul. I mean, one thing that, that astounds me, you know, year on year is how things do improve. And it's very unusual that I go to another country and see an office that's better than something that's been produced in the UK. It may be bigger, it may be different in, in all kinds of ways, but the sheer quality of talent that exists within the UK to, to produce extraordinarily fine buildings is, is quite remarkable. There will undoubtedly be some some big changes. Now, I did the interview with with Bill Price, which I think you've seen for last last week or so, whenever it was, where Bill used the phrase anti-distancing in, in the context of lifts. And as you say, there are going to be some big issues in terms of the provision of lavatories and all, all sorts of other elements of, a, of an office design that we'll need to think about. But I'm conscious of time, and unfortunately, we I just have time for one more, which I'd like to put to you, which is a kind of a magic wand question, Paul, if, if I may, and if you could instantly implement one change in the architectural profession, Paul, what would that be? I would like to see the UK architectural profession do considerably less work, either for nothing uh, or at rates which guarantee a loss. Uh, and the reason for that is not to try to make architects prosperous. Some are successful practices uh, do very well. But I think the, the culture that is developed uh, of doing competitions for nothing, um, working on projects at risk from day one, has had a malign effect on the profession. And in the end, that spills out into the service that clients get. And it spills out into, wider, in, into the wider world at large. So for example, if architects are doing too much work on a non-profitable basis, um, what happens is it means that they can't afford to pay people properly and it's no accident and I think architects are probably the worst paid considering the considerable time it's taken them to qualify uh, of the professions in general. It means that access to the profession uh, to, you know, black and mi minority ethnic and women until very recently was actually restricted partly by um, the economic prospects available. I mean, you know, would you advise a talented young black kid to become an architect as opposed to going into accountancy or becoming a doctor or possibly e even an engineer? I'm not too sure about that. And I think we have to have a culture where Architects value their own work um, and it's the creative thinking which needs more rewarding than knocking out working details at the end of the process. So I think architects are going to, of course, concentrate on their own competence. But one way of doing that is not to fritter away time on what to me are sometimes futile uh, competitions run by people who don't really expect architecture 
they're, they're, they're looking for architecture as a kind of excuse for not making a decision. And they treat architects rather like if you or I got into a cab, uh, assuming social distancing and a nice screen, <laughs> and saying to the cabbie, well, drive on, drive on, cabbie, um, and uh, I'll let you know in a little while where I think I actually want to go. At that point, you can put the meter on. I don't want architects as such uh, to be like black cab drivers or any other sort of driver, um, but I think there's got, they've got to be realistic about money. Some very, very good points there, Paul, and, and the vital importance of the architectural profession and indeed all professions and elements of society working to attract the very best in talent. That's the only way that any of them are going to survive and prosper and everyone should be paid properly for the work that they do and the contribution that they make. It's been absolutely fascinating, Paul. As always, it's an enormous pleasure to talk to you. I'm very, very grateful for your time. I hope that you've all enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And until next time from Paul and from me, thank you very much and goodbye.